It was interesting uh, going to Boston yesterday and seeing all of the historical sites. It's the first time that my wife Sharon and I have uh, been up in this uh, wonderful area and uh, got to see the, the huge, massive statue of, of George Washington and got to see the, the grave site of Paul Revere and, uh, you know, stone with Samuel Adams' name on it and all of, all of the other things that are there downtown and the Boston Commons and so forth and just such rich wonderful history and so if you go back to the Treaty of Paris in uh, 1783 that was the formal conclusion of the war for independence so if you you know think back to high school and you probably had that on a test as a test question what was the treaty it was the Treaty of Paris it was uh, arranged largely by Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay. They were the ones who negotiated that uh, with the represent uh, representatives of King George III, um, of course, of Great Britain. What's interesting, though, is that that really wasn't the end of the conflict, if you recall your history. Remember the British were... Um, Although they had ceded most of their territory west of the uh, Mississippi and, and expanded the size of the, the U.S. through that, and they had said, we'll abandon all the forts. They didn't abandon all the forts, and their troops would continue to carry out skirmishes. Uh, they uh, blocked exports from the United States uh, with their navy, uh, they, they block certain uh, ports and so forth. Um, they forced many American sailors into service for the British. And um, they also seized naval and military supplies after that Treaty of Paris. And being a good Scots-American, I think the British can never be trusted. <laughs> but um, it is interesting that that uh, that carried on for years and years. In fact, it went on for 12 years. It was the Jay Treaty, again, if you remember your high school, or may remember that as a test question, it was the Jay Treaty that actually ended all of the conflicts. And um, it ended those ongoing conflicts. It was not very popular, but it was uh, put into place uh, with the, the signing by George Washington. And... Um, so he implemented that treaty despite its unpopularity. So why in the world talk about all of that? What does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 9, right? Well, thinking about the fact that American independence had been secured. It had been won by the, the blood, sweat, and tears of those American patriots as they, they struggled during the Revolutionary War against the British forces, and they gained independence for our nation. And so when that peace treaty, uh, the Treaty of Paris was signed, that was sort of like the declaration, okay, the, the independence has been won, so forth. But those battles continued. Well, in our lives we see that the Lord Jesus Christ has secured our salvation. He has secured our redemption. It has been accomplished. 
But yet battles are still being carried out, aren't they? Battles are ongoing. Conflicts still remain. And so it, it took the J Treaty to bring everything to a conclusion. It will be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ that will bring everything to conclusion. And as we look at this text this morning, let us consider the fact that the victory for our salvation has already been secured through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider this, let's look specifically at the three appearances of Christ that are discussed in this text and how it relates to our salvation here, even though we are still facing battles. So the first takeaway this morning is Christ's past work and our past salvation, which we might call our justification, being declared righteous before God because of the righteousness of another, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text says this, But now once at the end of the ages He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So here it says that He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He appeared on earth to accomplish this great work. To do this. It's fascinating presently that many people, you know, go to downtown Boston. Nobody doubts that George Washington lived or Paul Revere lived or Sam Adams lived or a lot of the founding fathers. You go back in history, nobody doubts that, you know, Julius Caesar lived or other historical figures. But the existence of Jesus Christ has been thrown into doubt by many. And it's kind of mind-blowing and flabbergasting when you think of it. The Church of England conducted a survey back in 2015, and it revealed that 22% of adults in England do not believe that Jesus was a real person. The previous year, there was an individual, uh, Raphael Lataster. He's a religious studies lecturer at the University of Sydney. He's also the author of There Was No Jesus, There Is No God. And he wrote an article that appeared in the Washington Post on December 18th, 2014, with the title, Did the Historical Jesus Really Exist? The Evidence Just Doesn't Add Up. And in that article, Lataster writes these words. The first problem we encounter when trying to discover more about the historical Jesus is the lack of early sources. The earliest sources only reference the clearly fictional Christ of faith. These early sources, compiled decades after the alleged events, all stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. Also important are the sources we don't have. There are no existing eyewitnesses or contemporary accounts of Jesus. All we have are later descriptions of Jesus' life events by non-eyewitnesses, most of whom are obviously biased, end quote. He's obviously biased. This is the kind of attitude and outlook that we are facing in the world today. 
it's, it's not only saying Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not Savior. Jesus didn't even exist as a person. Now, we think of the Gospels, and we see that there are plenty of eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus. Let's consider the Gospel of Matthew itself. Who was it written by? Matthew. Yes, you all get an A+. Plus. All right? It was written by Matthew, also known as Levi, the tax collector. So we have external evidence. The church history points to, hey, this was the author. It was Matthew. When we look at the internal evidence for that reality, it's fascinating. For example, the uh, term for coins, there are three different Greek terms for coins found in Matthew that aren't found anywhere else. Well, why would he be concerned about coins? Why would he be interested in that? Because he used to be a tax collector and he collected coins. And that was that individual personality coming out as he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He references himself as Matthew the tax collector or Levi the tax collector. That's not found in uh, the other synoptic Gospels. Why not? Because tax collector was a term of derision, remember, in the New Testament? If you were a tax collector, you had been one who had been a traitor to your own people collecting taxes for the Romans. And I'm not sure if tax collectors, if that reputation has ever changed. But it's fascinating. So you see the internal evidence. See the Gospel of Mark that was written by John Mark which is also sometimes called Peter's Gospel because all of the material was relayed by the Apostle Peter. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. Now, strictly speaking, it is anonymous because he never names himself, but he is called the beloved disciple in the text. But in chapter 1 and verse 14 of the Gospel of John, we have seen His glory. We've seen it. And then we read his words in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That's an eyewitness writing. We heard Jesus. We saw Jesus. We touched Jesus. We have seen Him. We have touched Him. We have heard Him. That's an eyewitness. Amen? And we think of the Apostle Peter who writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. It sounds similar to the Apostle John, doesn't it? 
They saw. They were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 much about the resurrection. And then he says in verses 5-8, through and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. He's saying, these all saw Him after the resurrection eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Historical reality. Lawrence Mikituk is the Associate Professor of Library Science at Purdue University. In 2015, he wrote an article in in, uh, the Biblical Archaeology Review on extra-biblical evidence for Jesus. So he takes the opposite position of Letaster. And he notes that there was absolutely no debate about the issue in ancient times. Nobody ever doubted that Jesus existed. And he notes in that article, Jewish rabbis who did not like Jesus or his followers accused him of being a magician and leading people astray, but they never say, said he didn't exist. Now, let's go back in history. The first century Historian Flavius Josephus, who wrote much about the history of Palestine. It was published in the year 93 uh, in his Jewish Antiquities. It was a 20-volume history of the Jews. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ twice in there. And not as a fan, we might say, um, but he does mention him. And in the first century, historian Uh, Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and also a Roman senator in his Annals of Imperial Rome, noted Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. He notes a historical fact about Christus being put to death. The Roman historian Suetonius referenced Jesus in writing that Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome who were Quote, making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Does that sound familiar to you? It may, because you probably read it in Acts chapter 18, verse 12, from Luke, who was a great historian. That he, he almost parallels Suetonius in that. So who's biased? Jesus existed. Historical fact. He existed. Now some may say, well, yeah, but was he raised from the dead? Well, that's, that's another issue in a sense. And again, Letaster says early Christians were biased. But if something happened, if something were real, of course you would be biased. When I went to Boston, I was biased about Paul Revere being buried right there. Why? Because he was buried right there because I saw... The, the stone, I saw the head marker, right? The grave marker. I believe it. You might go back a few years. You know, I saw something about JFK, so we're driving through Massachusetts. You know, JFK land. I believe that JFK existed. Imagine that. Now, I never saw JFK. 
I never saw him. He was president long before I was born. Never saw him. I've heard people talk about him. Never saw him. Never an eyewitness. Now, did JFK exist? Well, you're all going to say yes because you're Americans, right? This is the kind of thing that we're dealing with. No, Jesus was a real person. He came in time and space, born of a virgin. Now, the resurrection, again, there were eyewitnesses that he had been not only crucified, but raised from the dead. They saw him. They touched him. They heard him. And so, of course, they were biased about that because something amazing had happened. Now, if it had just been, hey, you know, Jesus is gone, let's. But let's continue his teachings. Let's talk about him being a great teacher and a wise man and all of those things. Okay, so they've just put your Lord to death. They've crucified him, which was the most awful torture that somebody could experience. And now we're going to start a new religion? Especially when they threaten us? I don't know about you. Now, I'm willing to face a lot of dangers, but... Who's willing to die for a lie? Who's willing to die for something that isn't real? It's amazing that all of the apostles, except for the apostle John, although he had been banished from the empire, put on the Isle of Patmos before he ended up in the area of Ephesus, but all of the apostles faced excruciating deaths. The Apostle Peter, for example, church history says that he was crucified upside down because he didn't believe that he was worthy to die in the same fashion as his Lord. And he was crucified after watching his beloved wife crucified in front of him. Now, would you watch your wife be put to death on a cross, suffering? Bleeding for a lie. And then go through that yourself. That makes no logical sense. Philip, he went to Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. Preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching the message... He's told, basically, be quiet. We don't want to hear this. And he continues to proclaim the gospel. And he's given this opportunity to stop doing it in order that he might spare his life. But he continues to preach the gospel. They put him to death by boiling him in oil. Is that what you face for a lie? No. But if you are biased by the reality of the resurrection, you are willing to cast aside everything for the sake of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many.
He is God and became man. He appeared to put away sins, not just as a phantom, but as a human being, as a man. He came and he died for sinners and he was raised from the dead. And quite frankly, if he were not raised from the dead, there's no point of you being here this morning. There's no point of me being here this morning if that is not historical reality. If it's not historical reality, then you are wasting your time. Some might say, well, you're living a better life. You know, it's just important that you have faith in something. So, so have faith in something and just live a better life. Okay, go live a better life doing something else rather than saying there's this Jesus dude that you know, we're saying was raised from the dead that was crucified on a cross. I mean, who cares if he wasn't raised from the dead? It makes no difference if he were not raised from the dead. Ah, but if he is raised from the dead, you have every reason to be here this morning. You have every reason to live for him every day. You have every reason to trust him with all things. He appeared once to do away with sin. So the reality of the resurrection means that the cross has meaning. And it is central to Christianity. The cross is central to Christianity. And by the cross, I don't merely mean a symbol. But Christ crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. That is what we mean by the cross. Back in the early 1980s, Poland's Prime Minister Wojciech Jaroslaw Jaroselski had banned crucifixes in factories and schools and hospitals and other public institutions. And some of you may recall the images that were on television that were being broadcast all over the world uh, in the wake of that decision. Because the government had um, done that, the Roman Catholic priests gathered together and they protested the actions. And there were these waves of anger and resentment that went throughout Poland. And so at first the government relented and said, okay, we're going to keep the law on the books, but we'll, we'll let you be. However, there was a zealous communist school administrator in Garvoyan. And he went, he made sure that all of those crucifixes were gone, that all of the crosses were gone in those schoolrooms. And so, those uh, seven large crucifixes that were there, he took them all down from their lecture halls. And then in the days following, these parents would go in and they would replace crucifixes and crosses in those lecture halls and those schoolrooms. Well, he was a pretty determined fellow, so had the officials go back in, remove those crosses and those crucifixes. In the days following... There was a student protest after he had those removed. And two-thirds of the student body staged a sit-in to protest. There were riot police who came to the scene. 
And they forced the students into the streets, out of the school, and they were joined by other students and by priests and by the Polish people, which is probably what you may have seen on the television. And what was interesting is they were marching thousands and thousands strong. They were holding up crosses as they marched. There was a priest who came and delivered a message. And to sum it up, he said, there is no Poland without a cross. There is no Poland without a cross. So I would tell you there is no Christianity without a cross. There is absolutely no Christianity without the cross of Christ. It does not exist. And what exists apart from the the cross of Christ, what calls itself Christianity, has nothing to do with Christianity because it has nothing to do with the resurrected Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ appeared the first time to put away sin. And now He appears before the Father to intercede for His people. So let's look at this. Verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Catch that. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is the culmination of New Testament history. So you remember that we have the cross and then we have the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to those hundreds. And then He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the apostles are watching as that ascension occurs. Now, if you look at Old Testament prophecy, this is the focal point of a lot of Old Testament history. That is, the ascension is. The kingdom of God reaches its apex in the coronation of Christ Jesus as king. So many of us read the text and we think, oh, he went up, he just went up to heaven. There's a lot more going up than just he went up to heaven. No, it's he has accomplished the work and now he has gone where? To the right hand of the Father. He has gone to the throne. He's gone to the throne room. He has ascended to the throne to be seated upon the throne as king. He has ascended as king. He is now seated at the throne of all cosmic authority. He rules and He reigns. Our redemption has been secured. And now we're seeing what comes after. And so we may look at things and go, wait, but there are still battles going on. Yes, it doesn't mean that He doesn't reign. It doesn't mean that He's not in charge. All things are subject to His feet. And the ascension culminates in the session because He has assumed all authority over this world. Remember He said to His disciples as He was departing, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? To Me. And therefore, go do what? Make disciples of all the nations. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He now appears to intercede for us. When we look in the New Testament, we see the Lord Jesus Christ praying, interceding for His people in John 17. And we are told in Scripture 
that He is now praying for us. So He has died for us. He's been risen for us. And now He prays for us. Think of that. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, He's praying for you. What an amazing thing. Romans 8.34, Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also does what? Makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus is praying for you. You ever feel like, you know, somebody would say, I'm praying for you, and it, it encourages your heart? Even if nobody else is praying for you, guess what? The Lord Jesus is praying for you if you're a believer. Every day, every moment, He has now appeared before the throne of God and makes intercession. So He not only appeared to die upon the cross, He now appears to make intercession for you. What an encouragement. It was part of his earthly ministry and continues to be part of his priestly ministry. It's on the basis of his completed work at the cross that he does this, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. You may recall that the Old Testament high priest was responsible on the Day of Atonement for offering a sacrifice for the people. Well, what we have with Christ as priest, and remember, he's not quite like the Old Testament priest. Why? Because he's of a different order. Of the order of Melchizedek, which is forever. And he offered the sacrifice of himself that is forever. It wasn't for his own sin. It was only for his people. Oh, man. And so he sprinkled his own blood on the cross. He is both priest and sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. So our complete salvation turns on the effectiveness of His continued and continual intercession. And His intercession, its effectiveness, turns on the effectiveness of His death. And His death has been effective. His intercession is effective. And so if you are a believer, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because he died for you and he's praying for you. It's all of grace. And we should not think that as the Father is being prayed to, as the Lord is making intercession to the Father as He's interceding for us before the Father that it's somehow the Father is just ready to throw down the hammer. But we remember that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by whom? By the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes upon Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the Father who in the love sent the Son And so what does the Lord Jesus pray for us? What does He pray for us now? Well, we get a a glimpse of it, I think, in John 17, in that high priestly prayer, as He is praying for those who would come after the disciples. He prays for the apostolic blessing of divine unity to extend to us. He prays for our unity. 
He prays for the presence of Christ to be unmistakable in us. He prays for us to be with Him and share His glory. And He prays that God's love would fill us just as His presence fills us. Those are the kinds of things that the Lord Jesus is praying today for you. But does it always feel like Jesus is praying for you? Does it always feel like Jesus has died for you? Does it always feel like Jesus is raised for you and that Jesus is in absolute control and charge of everything in the world and in your life in particular? Probably not. Maybe it was this morning. Anybody struggle with sanctification on the way in this morning? Uh oh. Do we want to go there? I remember mornings driving to church, right? The kids are in the back. Those little sinners in the back. <laughs> Making my sin come out, right? <laughs> or maybe it was getting ready for church. I'm sitting there this morning trying to kind of relook at my notes. And we're in a hotel room, and it's a beautiful room, and it's great accommodations, but the guy next door is blasting death metal, this thrash metal. (laughs) I'm trying to read Hebrews 9. (laughs) Half an hour of that. It was glorious. (laughs) So I'm praying for the guy next door, Lord. You know, I don't don't know what his status is with you, but Lord, if he's not a believer, please bring him to faith. But, you know, there, there are all these things competing for our attention and our affections in the world. And there are all of these things that assault us in the world. And our circumstances are often hard and difficult. And we wonder, am I holding on tight enough? Am I... Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Why is this happening? Those are the kinds of questions that plague us. Often it may feel like we're losing the battle. We could say, you know, I'm not praying enough. I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not doing this enough. I'm not doing that enough. I'm not doing enough charity. I'm not loving others I'm not loving my spouse the way I should. I'm not loving my kids the way I should. I'm not loving my parents the way I should. I, my coworkers are driving me nuts. I, I just... I, Lord, I look at the political situation in the land. Lord, what is going on? There are all these things that can hit us and assault us. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. He has done everything for our salvation. He lived and obeyed the Father perfectly. He obeyed the law perfectly that we might have the blessing of His obedience. He died upon a cross to take away the penalty and the punishment of our disobedience. He's been raised from the dead and now ever lives to make intercession for us. So this morning, I'm trying to read Hebrews 9. Jesus is praying for me 
at that moment. How glorious. I didn't feel very sanctified. I didn't feel very set apart. But he was praying. How glorious. Good works flow from our salvation. They don't cause our salvation. See, why was I able to pray for that guy? Because God put it in my heart to pray for him. Not because I'm basically a good guy. That's why. We should look to Jesus as our only hope. One of my favorite hymn writers is Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley just has some great hymns. But he wrote the hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. And it captures this work of the Lord Jesus. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. The bleeding, or before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atone for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. So he prays for our ongoing sanctification, being set apart, being made holy, being made Christ-like. So the war is won, the redemption is secured, the battles rage from the moment we wake up to the time that we lay our heads on the pillows. The battles continue on just like they did back in the late 1700s because of the British and all that they were doing and there was the conflict with the Americans. But the victory, the independence, had already been won. And so look to Christ Jesus as your only hope. And this brings us to the last point. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The Lord is coming back, is what Scripture says. Now there are multiple viewpoints regarding eschatology, which is that big fancy word for the doctrine of last things. I don't know where you stand. There's you know, historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, all millennialism, panmillennialism. It's all just going to pan out in the end. Um, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of folks can get really fired up about their particular position. I've met brothers and sisters who are historic premill and they love Jesus. I've met brothers and sisters who are dispensational premill and they love Jesus. I've met post-millennialists, and they love Jesus. And I've met all-millennialists, and they love Jesus. And they all, we all agree on one thing. He's coming back. He's coming back. And so when we look in Scripture, we see that the return of Christ is referenced multiple times. Over 1,500 Old Testament passages deal with this theme And approximately one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament speak of the return of the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, as you look in the New Testament, what is it, as it speaks about the return of Christ, what is it always linked to? Ethical living. 
That's kind of the thrust of the New Testament when it speaks of the return of Christ. Therefore, in light of his appearing, what type of people ought you to be? That's, that's what we get. And so, when we see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that it will bring in, it will usher in the kingdom of God. It will be his absolute, unchallenged rule and reign. No longer any challenges. It will be like the J Treaty. That's it. We're done. We're done. Now we know that there was a war of 1812, you know. But when Christ comes, that's it. He settles it and history is done. And His kingdom is forever. There will be the resurrection of the just and the unjust. The final judgment and the final destiny of all people of all times. And so we can look and we maybe see injustice in our world and are concerned about justice. Well, true justice will take place when Christ returns and not until. Now, we have measures of justice. But let me ask you a question. Adolf Hitler, there he was in the bunker, took his own life. Seems like he got off easy, right? I think so. In light of the fact that 12 million people were put to death in camps and so forth and exterminated. We're not even talking about those killed by the wars. Hitler. We think of the great evils that he perpetrated. He got off that easy? Just took his own life? That's it? Oh, no. When the king comes, he will mete out perfect justice for all eternity. Hitler didn't get by with anything. And neither will you, and neither will I. That's sobering. Now, it's easy to point to Hitler, because, man, that, that was a bad dude right there. But what about me? What about you? I never killed anybody. Did you hate somebody in your heart? Did you murder them in your heart? Did you slay their reputation with your tongue? What are you talking about? What did the Lord Jesus say? If you hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder, right? You lust after somebody with your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart, and you are a lawbreaker. But I didn't actually do it. Oh, but you actually did in here. Even if you didn't do the act with your hands, so to speak. And there are plenty of things that we've said, plenty of things that we've done, plenty of things that we've thought that are worthy of punishment and death and hell. Each and every one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, not some. Does that make you feel hopeless? I hope it does to a degree in that I hope you feel hopeless in yourself. But you realize, no, there is a Savior who appeared to take away sin. And He's coming again to take me home to be with Him. Pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will set all things right. So how do we live in light of what he has done and what he will do. 
Because Christ has redeemed not only our souls, but our bodies as well, if we are in Him. Our souls, our, our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, our affections are to be set on Him above all else. And our bodies are to be living sacrifices for the Lord in all that we do. We are to live out the reality of His return each and every day, looking forward in faith and in hope. We read in Titus chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And our waiting is not to be passive, just like sitting on a chair and just waiting for something to happen while we're twiddling our thumbs. No, we're to be active and engaged in this world. And we are to actively pursue holiness because God is holy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in Him, that is of the return, purifies Himself just as He is pure. And this hope in salvation, this hope in Christ, because He is pure, we purify ourselves. We walk in sanctification. We live in a way that displays that we trust Him in all things. So where are you struggling this morning? I have absolutely no idea. I know where I'm struggling. And politics is driving me nuts. Work situation stuff driving me nuts. Federal government stuff driving me nuts. But I'm reminded, this world is not all there is. I'm a citizen primarily and ultimately of the kingdom. And my hope must be set on him. In 2000, the National Gallery in London put on a millennial celebration. And it was entitled, Seeing Salvation. Fascinating. It was an interesting choice in light of the secularization that has taken place in Europe. But the exhibit consisted primarily of these paintings of the crucifixion of Christ. And many critics sneered. You know, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why depict torture and death? Why fill the gallery with it? Much to the dismay of the critics, thousands and thousands and thousands of Europeans flocked to the exhibit. They turned out in droves to see these works of art. I would tell you, the world is filled with critics who say things like, Jesus never existed even. There is no God. Forget living about some resurrected Christ. Just, just forget about it. And there are things that will assault you and try to turn you away from Christ. But I would encourage you to look forward to His return and consider his work at the cross and what he has accomplished on your behalf. And don't be swayed to the left or to the right. But continue forward in faith and in hope. It's interesting that the Rhode Island motto is hope. What a great motto. May your hope be in Christ and in him alone. He appeared the first time to put away sin. He now appears before the Father ever making intercession. And He will appear again. He's coming again. Live in light of that reality. Live in light of the three appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Him in prayer.
Holy Father, we do thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be ever mindful of what you have done and what you continue to do for us. May we not look to our own strength, our own wills, our own abilities, our own determinations. But Lord, may all of those things be set forth in light of your great work, your great accomplishment in salvation. May we ever trust you and live for your glory because you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be followed. You are worthy, Lord, of all glory and honor. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.